What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Cat Brooks. There's a large and looming backlog of court cases keeping San Franciscans in jail for years without seeing a trial. Joining us to discuss is Manu Raju, San Francisco's elected public defender since 2019. Good morning, Manu. Good morning, Kat. Good morning. It's an honor and pleasure to be on your show. I'm glad to have you on the new show. We haven't talked to you, I think, since you were elected. It's 2019. It's been a little Um, while. It's been a little while. Yeah. Well, you have certainly been busy. Break what's happening down for us. How many people are we talking about, and when did the backlog begin, or when did it get exacerbated? Because my understanding is there's always a backlog, yeah? Well, not really. Well, right now we are a thousand... We're 1,100 cases that are past the trial deadline, uh, including uh, 115 people who are jailed past their deadline in custody uh, in San Francisco. And, you know, before I get into the speedy trial violations and the action our courts are taking to end the trial delays, I want to take a step back and make sure people understand how crucial this is. You know, as public defenders, we provide legal advocacy to people accused of misdemeanors and felonies in San Francisco. Our clients cannot afford to hire an attorney, so all of our clients are impoverished or low income. Many struggle with mental health or substance use disorders. Many are unhoused. 75% are BIPOC. And when we defend people in court, what needs to be crucially understood is we don't control what gets charged against our clients. We don't control whether or not they remain in custody. We can advocate one way or another, but we don't make that decision. The only thing we control is when the case goes to trial by saying three words in court, time not waived or no time waiver. Uh, However, since the beginning of the pandemic, these deadlines and rights have been ignored. So the line for trial and the caseloads for public defenders continues to grow. And what's going on is the San Francisco Superior Court has been routinely violating the Sixth Amendment right to a speedy trial. And what they've been using is COVID as a substitute for actually looking at the cases in particular. They've been reading a script saying because of COVID, they're justified in postponing these cases. And we know the reality of this. If our clients were a different demographic, a different color, you know, there would be uh, national outrage. But because these are mainly poor people of color, you know, it tends to get swept under the rug, but it's a human humanitarian human rights crisis and it needs to end. I heard you just lay the, the responsibility at the feet of the San Francisco Superior Court. I'm interested in what role the district attorney plays in any of this and how that may have changed from, you know, what we would have all called a progressive prosecutor to a much more conservative one now in terms of being able to address this issue. Well, I mean, the district attorney has not been joining us on the steps. I mean, what's going on right now is we have about a 15% increase in the cases that have been filed in the last seven months. So when you continue to file cases and, and, you know, ramp up this war on drugs, well, the backlog just increases. Um, but But it's important to keep in mind, you know, no matter who the prosecutor is, again, what, what we we, as I said before, we don't control many dynamics of the system. What we do control is the ability to leave no stone and turn an investigation, file all the proper motions, prepare the case for trial. Because whoever the prosecutor is, their window into the case is just the police report. And often the police report is drafted by police who 
in addition to whatever biases they may bring to the table, are trying to write a police report just to peg a certain, to, to justify a certain booking. After the case is filed, we're the ones who ask extra questions of the witnesses. We're the ones who find the extra witnesses. We're the ones who find character witnesses. We're the ones who might do uh, uh, evaluation of our clients, so, you know, a social history or mental health evaluation. So by the time you get to trial, the case often will look very, very, very different than when it was initially filed. And that's why the cases are so serious. And we find that when prosecutors are actually forced to prove the case, because they're on the eve of trial, often they'll get more serious and say, oh, I know we filed two strikes, but reality is we can't sustain any of it, and this is actually a misdemeanor case. Or, you know, um, you know, or we can't prove it at all, and cases get dismissed. So, one, we need this opportunity to actually reveal truth and demand justice in the courtroom, in trials, but also oftentimes that's the moment when district attorneys look more seriously at the difference between what they filed and what can actually be proven. So when that deadline is gone, neither of those happen, and the backlog just continues. So you painted a picture for us of the demographic of folks, demographics of the folks that are most impacted by this. Can you, let, let, let's paint a picture now about the short and long-term impacts. And I'd actually like you to start with the conditions inside of the jail, because you talked about mental health issues, and we know that prolonged incarceration exacerbates existing mental health issues. Exactly. And, and you know, the, the, you know, being in jail in San Francisco, you know, that's, it, it's brutal. Our clients are not getting sunlight. A lot of them have been locked down for 23 hours a day. And it's just something that when you come out after that prolonged period in jail, you are going to be worse off than you were before. Um, and also now, uh, coming out of COVID, there's still not the programming that there used to be. So there's all sorts of uh, horrific conditions in the jail. But on top of that, even for the clients outside of jail, a lot of them are on ankle monitors. A lot of them are in positions where they um, have stay-away orders, so their life is severely restricted, and then they're often making a lot of court dates, uh, being coming to court for, for court dates where not much is happening. Uh, for us, the most important date is that that no time waiver trial date, which, we again, is the only thing that we historically have been able to control. And keep in mind, when people have these cases pending over their heads, they can't get through with their case, whether it gets dismissed, whether it resolves, there's a certain point where we want them to get through clean slates so they can move on with their lives, access housing, access employment, access educational opportunities. But oftentimes when that case is pending, it's very difficult for clients and their families. And I think that's very crucial to remember the impact on families for every single person who's in the system um, is, is frustrated and people aren't able to move forward with their lives in the way that they want to. Can you walk us through maybe a couple of cases, perhaps uh, a couple of the most egregious uh, that you've come across sure. as you all have been yeah, fighting back? Was, yeah, there was a, a woman who was in jail for about two and a half years, and one of my line attorneys, it, it was a murder case, but and she was uh, accused of being an aider and a better and pretty much just at the scene, but not really doing anything. It was She had kept on insisting, the attorney, that the case um, go to trial and never waive time, which means that in a felony case, you have the right to a trial within 60 days once they file a charging document, called, which is called an information, and never waive time. And it kept on getting postponed, postponed, postponed because of the pandemic. When they actually got to trial, this is two and a half years later, the judge thought the case was so weak it shouldn't even go to the jury. 
And once they heard the prosecution's evidence, discovered just dismissed the case on her own. Um, so that's one egregious case. But there have been many cases where it's been past the deadline, and we've seen jurors deliberate sometimes for as little as an hour and returning not guilty verdicts. So these are, you know, really egregious conditions that, you know, need to come to an end. And that's why we're having these sit-ins every Friday to draw attention to these issues. We've had different themes for the sit-ins. One was on Juneteenth, uh, you know, honoring the, 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 the black liberation struggle and, and how that connects with the public defender struggle that we're currently involved in. Uh, last week, on right before Pride, was um, celebrating LGBTQ rights and our, our continual insistence uh, that we honor different communities. And this week, with July 4th approaching, it's going to be more focused on what are supposed to be fundamental constitutional rights. What, if any, legal challenges to what's happening has your office brought forth? Sure. Well, we are individually moving to dismiss when cases go past the last day, and that is winding its way through the system. But also, earlier, uh, a couple of years ago, I personally filed a lawsuit along with taxpayers and uh, family members of our clients against the Superior Court for violating our clients' uh, constitutional rights. And we recently got a court of appeal decision that came down last week that validated much of what we've been saying, that, it, that validated that it's correct that the court under law is supposed to pr prioritize criminal cases over civil cases. It's supposed to prioritize criminal cases where our client's liberty and freedom is at stake over civil cases, and it has not been doing that. Um, the court had also, at times, the courts and the sheriff were pointing fingers at each other a little bit, and there's a civic center courthouse uh, right, on, right on McAllister Street by City Hall, and that's a courthouse that we insisted should be used for criminal trials. They've been using it for civil trials and saying something about security, but the reality is there's holding cells over there. The, the case said there's airport-style security going into that building. There's absolutely no reason you can't be holding criminal trials there. Uh, and, and also, the, what the court had been reading, reading is literally a pre-prepared script, unclear who drafted the script, just saying the pandemic is the justification for the delay without looking at individual reasons in particular cases why they were being postponed. So that was a good decision, and the court has made some steps in the right direction. We hope they continue to do that, but it clearly showed that we were correct. And, you know, some people have asked me, how, you know, how can you sue the court or the public defender? And people have been saying it's vital in this, in this day and age that the public defender remain independent uh, and fiercely devoted to our clients. Um, there's, and that's something that I felt compelled to do. I pleaded with the court and had several communications. I'm telling you, you have to do something or we're going to have to take legal action. And then we did, and now we're seeing some results from that. But, you know, it's nothing personal against any particular judge, but the reality is um, our clients' lives are at stake, and it's really important that we be aggressive in defending them, and that's what San Franciscans, I think, want from their public defender. I want to tug on that thread just a little bit more because I had a question uh, uh, along those lines, which is, like, we know PD offices are woefully underfunded, um, often mm -hmm. understaffed. How do you, um, and we need to change that, how do you work in this kind of advocacy and manage your massive court caseloads? You know, it's very tough. And, you know, I have a wonderful team, uh, you know, social workers, paralegals, investigators, uh, attorneys, uh, IT staff. 
that really this is their calling uh, clerical staff and they come to they come to work every day and really uh, do their all for for our clients and I'm really proud of them but it is a woeful situation in San Francisco and across the country we our budget is only 50 57 percent of the district attorney's budget uh, anyone who do, does this work knows how much more challenging uh, public defender work is than than being a prosecutor and on top of that though you have to keep in mind that the district attorney's office has the entire police force at their disposal as their investigative mm-hmm. wing competing against my you know uh, 20-something uh, investigators so really you got to take the district attorney's office which is you know almost double ours and then the police department which is almost 14 times ours then you have the sheriff you have parole uh, you have uh, probation departments and these are all law enforcement ages agencies and when you look at our budget compared to theirs it is minuscule and it's a huge 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 problem in this country and what people don't realize is that you know when we are concerned about community health and we're concerned about public safety when people get convicted of something worse than what they should have been convicted of or wrongly convicted which happens all the day usually through course of plea bargaining techniques because of trial taxes the judges are imposing or overcharging or or not having a jury of your peers that just doesn't impact that individual due to extended incarceration or or being convicted of things more than they should have been. It also impacts their entire their family and sometimes the next generation, which can then link to less community health. Um, on top of that, we at the public defender's office, we are committed to being counselors, being facilitators. Um, we have Fifth Amendment protections, so our clients can be very straightforward if there are issues going on in their lives, and we can connect. We are people who connect people with City College, with Cal State uh, Project Rebound, some people know about, with potential employment opportunities, with mentors, with substance abuse counseling. So we're uniquely positioned to help people deal with issues in their life and actually move them in a more positive path. So, you know, I often will tell people at City Hall, listen, we're going to do more with, you know, 10 cents than a lot of the uh, quote-unquote law enforcement agencies are going to do with $10. So it's crucial that public defenders be invested in both to protect constitutional rights and avoid wrongful convictions and also to facilitate uh, public safety and community health in conjunction with community-based organizations. Mono, what's the pathway forward? How do we make our way out from here? <sighs> I think it's a multi-pronged <laughs> path, <laughs> and, it's a, and it's a long-term vision. I mean, we at the public defender's office, we're going through a strategic planning process where we're working on you know, trying to change the system. We have a, a small but mighty policy team that's trying to make changes in Sacramento and also work on community power dynamics. We have um, two 501C, a 501C3 in our organization called the MAGIC program, BMO MAGIC, which is in the Bayview and the Fillmore, where we youth empowerment agencies to keep people on a path and hopefully not uh, come into the system. But we also have to really invest in robust public defense uh, so that we can uh, continue to you know, reveal truth and demand justice in courtrooms. We also have to shift funding. I mean, there has just been uh, you know, a, a reversal after the awareness that seemed to be created in the George Floyd moment where we're now investing more and more in police, more and more in district attorney's offices, and that really has to stop. Um, we have to start shifting resources in the direction of uh, evidence-based solutions to some of our community health issues that we know work. We have to start treating public health 
issues as public health issues, housing issues as housing issues, um, and you know, educational equity issues as educational equity issues, and not say everything is a police solution. Um, and I think part of what we need to do is show our success stories. Um, you know, I just had a client send me a picture yesterday, uh, a couple weeks ago, mother of four who just graduated, um, super proud of what she's done. She was, you know, someone who was facing five charges. We litigated, you know, put everything into the case, got a wonderful result in the case, and now she's on her way. And, and you know, a beautiful mother of four moving in the right direction. I think we need to tell the stories more of the other way and what's actually working. And I think when we start doing that, we've we had a convening with including with your organization and others um, mm-hmm. uh, where we're starting to, you know, get people on the same page moving in the right direction. And I think that is the path forward is just, you know, one step at a time and showing that there's there's a better way than the mass incarceration system that this uh, country has pursued for so long. Yeah, we are super excited at APTP to be walking down this path with you all. And we so deeply appreciate your work, and I so deeply appreciate you coming on the show. Hope to have you back again soon. Okay, thank you so much, Kat. I appreciate you. Take care. You too. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.